Good morning. Uh, I'm starting from verse 1 of chapter 11 in Romans. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? <clears throat> Lord, they have, killed, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm reading from Romans 11, 22 to 36. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. 
Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and, contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. As you know, I was away last week, um, spoke at a church for the weekend, and then the staff were away on a conference, a really wonderful conference. Uh, for three or four days. I don't particularly like conferences, but this was just excellent. Um, and I know some of you are praying for both, so thank you for that. Um, look, to be honest, I, I, I've got myself into a bit of a funk this week with this passage. Um, as we shared when we looked at Revelation, not Revelation, Romans 9, this is one of the passages that most preachers who are wise avoid. And so you can find all sorts of things they do, Romans 1 to 8, 12 to 16. Um, because 9, 10, 11, they're one solid argument. And I would encourage you, but one of the things to do with a Sunday is to perhaps just sit and read it, maybe even read it aloud. If you live with someone, perhaps uh, share it between you. Uh, and so if, if you weren't here for the first two or you missed one of them, uh, the sermon should be on the web and it would be helpful probably to listen to it. But we've come to the last, uh, the last of the three chapters, and if you've got a Bible, it would be really, really, really helpful to you if you could have it open in front of you. Um, and remember the argument or the question that came up that really lies behind this is tied to the themes of the whole book of Revelation, that it's about righteousness. But here the question is, is God doing the right thing by his ancient people? 
Can you really trust God for the long term in the ups and downs of your life and the, and the way things turn out? Is God righteous? It's not a word we use often, which is to our loss. Um, so, for example, recently Ali and I were looking at insurance companies and you hope when you give them the massive amounts of money that they will be somewhat righteous, that if something happens, they will meet their expect or our expectations. If you've got a friend, it's great to have a friend who's righteous, that they will they'll treat you rightly. If you're in a deep, personal, intimate relationship, you especially need people to be righteous. That is to do the right thing, to be trustworthy. And the question of this book is, is God righteous? How can I be seen by God to be righteous? How can he enter that sort of relationship with me? Let's pray that we, um, in these few minutes, looking at 36 or so verses, that we hear the voice of Jesus and hear the theme song, at least of this part of the Bible. Father in heaven, we are weak and limited, uh, full of our own opinions, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit we would hear your voice, uh, that our minds would be eager, sharp, humble, careful. And I pray that you would guide me in what I say and what I don't say. We ask for this blessing, Father, ultimately for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen. So, as I'm sure you remember, Romans 9, we saw, is based around two or three questions. And Romans 11, similarly. But the key thing I want us to notice is that this whole section, this chapter and this whole section finishes, as you would have noticed, on an, on an exultant song of praise. And what annoyed me when I look back at the way that I was feeling about this passage, just longing for weeks to come when we get to Romans 12 and other passages that are immediately relevant and really existentially exciting. This one's slightly, it's, it's a bit like chewing through some nourishing meat that perhaps you think should have been put in the slow cooker. Uh, but the nourishment's there. Uh, God has given you a brain and sometimes it gets its best workouts at church. But here, here he's going to, he finishes up not in a, oh, well, thank goodness we've got that question out of the way. The apostle finishes up just exploding with a heartfelt sense of, oh, the depth of the riches of the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God uh, and singing a song to his glory. So if I speak half adequately and you listen half adequately, the predominant thing at the end of this should be, yeah, that's interesting, but I'm not sure if I got the answer to what that word means at the end, you know, 20, verse 22, the second half of verse 22. It's not just an intellectual game, although there's plenty to think about here. And there will be plenty perhaps to explore in our home groups, life groups. But if we just turn this into some sort of intellectual game, and you need to be careful, some of us... That's how we tend to think. Perhaps we take it from work, or that's we like to think we're clever, and, and perhaps we are. Um, but we can just use our God-given brain in a way that actually does us no good. Because we just think, ah, oh, well, that's interesting. I'm not much interested in actually hearing the theme of the passage. Oh, I want an answer to this particular mystery. As I say, there's a place for that. But be careful of not listening in a way that in the end helps your heart finish up where the apostle finishes which is in a great song of praise and joy. Well, let's have a look at these three questions. There's a question in verse 1. We'll look at that first question. I ask then, did God reject his people? Secondly, of Israel, I ask again, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery of Israel? And then, 
from the great song of praise, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counsellor, who's given God advice and helped him work out what he should do. Uh, so let's have a look at firstly this first question. Has God rejected his people? Why would he even ask such a question? I ask then, did God reject his people? Well, the reason he asks is because of the last verse of chapter, chapter 10 and because of the felt experience of the Christians of that day. Listen to verse 21 of chapter 10, the verse directly before this one. But concerning Israel, he says, that is Isaiah, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Do you like to be described as obstinate? Determined, perhaps? Obstinate's got a level of, meh. you're sticking to your guns or your guns are stupid, right? And they're pointing in the wrong direction. And the complaint of God is, all day long I've held out my hands to a people who are disobedient and obstinate. And then the verse before it says, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. So he's reflecting on the fact that God has done his single most important, most wonderful, most beautiful, full of light moment in the, in the coming of the Messiah, according to the promise. That Jesus come, not as a great religious genius, but as a fulfilment of a long-awaited set of promises. And he's come, but overwhelmingly Israel, the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, which is the key thing about them, he's not thinking here, I don't think at all, about the nation state of Israel, which we hear of in the news, etc., and some of you have visited. He's not talking about the nation state. He's talking about the people of Israel, that is, the descendants of Abraham. And they took their Messiah and handed him over to the Romans to have him removed. So God does his great act, and instead of just being obstinate, they nail his hands to the wood. Why? That's why the concern is, has God, okay, that's what they've done to God and his son, has God rejected them? And when they look at the church in Rome, as far as we can tell, and you'll, we'll come into this again in chapters 14 and 15, that the church in Rome was both made of descendants of Abraham, that is, Jews, Israelis, and people like me, who don't seem to have any blood connection to the Red Sea pedestrians who were led through the Red Sea, etc., so the church is made of both, and increasingly it looks as if were the Jewish heart of the has become smaller and smaller. So it looked as if the Messiah has finally come and the people of God have missed the boat. Has God rejected them? Has God actually, in a sense, given them what they flipping well deserve? Because the one thing you don't want from God, either as a nation or as an individual, is God to give you what you deserve. And often you don't want God to give you what you want if it's contrary to his will. Has, and so what's his answer? Well, he answered it in the same structure as he does the second question. Did God reject his people? By no means. It's the strongest way of saying, yet, no, forget it, that's wrong. Has God rejected his people? No. And then the Apostle Paul gives his arguments for it. So he gives you the conclusion first, then he gives the reason and the explanation. And his explanation is an obvious one. Has God rejected the, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham? Listen to what he says. No, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And of course God hasn't rejected the Israelites. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. 
So of course, you know, whatever God's doing, he's not rejected the Israelites. He's not saying you can't play ball anymore. Because Paul himself, although he does most of his service amongst the nations that weren't the children of Abraham, he says the first bit of proof is, of course not, because I'm a Jew. Then he goes on and he gives an example where others have mistakenly worked out that God maybe has given up on his people. And he goes back to Elijah. Now, I preached from Elijah seven years ago, so I know you know everything and you remember it all. Um, he, he goes back to Elijah, that fierce, that most sort of, the classic prophet in a sense. Elijah, he appealed to God against Israel. So he's an Israelite appealing to God against them. He's had a massive public showdown at the risk of his life to, to defend the place of God amongst the people of God against these fake gods that were so attractive both then and now. And then they're trying to kill him. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets and, and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. I'm the only true Israelite. You know, remember back in chapter 9, it says not all Israel is Israel. Not all the people of God were the people of God, right? Which is what you can say here. Not all Christians are Christians. You know, that's, you know that some are here in form only. But so he says, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what does God say? God answers him, his prophet. I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So saying it looks to even someone as wise and as insightful as Elijah, as if it's all over for Israel. And God says, no, 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 I've got 7,000 people. 7,000, that's, that's better than one. Often things are not the way they look. And it looked as if perhaps Israel had missed the boat. They're yesterday's papers. Nobody wants them, right? But he said, no, no, no. I'm proof. And the mistake we're making is the same mistake that Elijah made. Now, the reason this matters is, what, what would it mean if God had given up on Israel? Well, he, he had given promises to Abraham. And if God gives up on it, it does mean that God, in a sense, he can just get a bit weary of us and tired. And that old proverb, which is only true as a proverb, it's not always the case, which is, past patterns are the best predictor of future actions. Past patterns are the best predictor of future actions. So if you're, if you're hoping that someone who's consistently done this will suddenly do the opposite, now you may be lining up for disappointment. Now, of course, people can change. But frankly, friends, it's rarer than we'd like to think. Our society holds a very shallow view about how we can all change to become whoever we want. All the wiser cultures say, can a leopard change its spots? It can with a miracle. So last week we were only an hour away from where my dearest, longest friend that I've mentioned in a few sermons here uh, was living. He'd moved to the country and I whipped across to have dinner with him and Sandra, his wife. And if you meet Tom now, he's, he's one of the most loving, one of the wisest, one of the most generous, deep, good guys you're ever going to meet. But for 17 years of his life, for much of it, he would steal from his own mother, literally stole from his own, stole, stole this family jewellery that had been in the, in the family for generations. To, to support his heroin habit. And Tom was utterly unreliable for decades. But God has changed him miraculously, both through his direct work of his Holy Spirit and with the help of NA. But, so, but it's still true that if someone, the past is a good predictor of the future. So what about God? Is God someone who will stick to his purposes? And what he's saying is here, don't for a second think that God has rejected his people of Israel. Whatever you think's going on, you might be Elijah and just factually wrong about what's going on, 
or you might just be nervous unnecessarily. And one of the reasons why we read the Bible again and again and again is because what you find then is stories of the way God treats people. And we see the way that God treats David and people like that, who is such a revoltingly selfish, dangerous person sometimes, and yet God was willing to forgive and to transform him. Or Peter, who at least a couple of times in the Gospels and in the Bible is a coward and turns back from publicly confessing Jesus, famously as Jesus being nailed up, but later on it's recorded in Galatians. Another time when he had a problem with courage and yet we know that he dies being crucified upside down in Rome. He died, he was transformed. But we'd still look at patterns and the pattern of God is he sticks with his people even when his people are revolting and he welcomes us back when we realise we failed. So that's the first question. Has God given up on Israel? No. Secondly, It's very clear that something not good is happening with Israel because as a whole, uh, as a nation, as a city of Jerusalem, and the leadership, the appointed leadership, both the priests and the civil leadership, turned against the very one that they were waiting for, which was God's Messiah. So, and, and in Rome, it was increasingly Christianity, or actually all around the world at that point, Christianity was increasingly not Jewish. It was Jewish at its core and centre, as we'll come back to. But it was mostly, increasingly, people like me, people who weren't related to Abraham. So the question he asks in verse 11, again I ask, did they, that is Israel, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Have they fallen not to get up? Or are they like that magnificent part of Chariots of Fire where Eric Liddell gets bumped over by the French? They're tricky, those French gets bumped over, rolls and, and looks up, gets up. And this, actually, this did actually happen. It's like quite a bit of that movie, it was true. He got up and did the unthinkable, being metres and metres behind, gets up and catches up. So is Israel going to get up? Is God going to enable them to get up? Or is it over? It was a nice thing while it lasted. And so his answer is the same. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. It might look like it, but it ain't true. Rather... He says, good things came out of their transgression. This is so often the way with God, isn't it? God is able to use deep human wickedness to do good things. He doesn't do the wickedness, but somehow or other in his brilliant sovereign plan and his goodness, so he does it in the life of Joseph, you meant it for evil, he says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, but God meant it for good. And we see it, of course, in the death of Jesus, where his own people and the Romans and some of his friends did terribly wicked things, and yet it's the most wonderful thing God has ever done. This is what he does. So what he says is this. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, which will make to make Israel envious. If their transgressions means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So he does acknowledge the fact, yes, actually, when Israel fell and opposed their own Messiah, Jesus, and opposed those who followed him, good things have come even out of their bad action. And even better things will happen when more and more of them turn back to him. And you'll see this beautifully outlined in the book of Acts, 
So how does the gospel finally leave Jerusalem? Jesus leaves and says, okay, I'm going to go. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the earth. But they don't go nowhere. They stay in Jerusalem. The first five, 6,000 Christians, all, all of them Jewish. And then in chapter 8, probably, possibly under the leadership of Paul, then known as Saul, because he's holding the coats. And some scholars suggest at this point, it's not because he's like the, the orange boy on the sideline. He's more like the coach. He's the organiser. But either way, he leads after the murder of, uh, of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He then, he then leads the organised persecution and eventually gets converted. Now, what happens is this. The, the big persecution happens on the Christians all in Jerusalem. So that out they go. And suddenly they're spreading out. And they're taking the gospel to Judea, to Samaria, to Syria and these places. They're, they're doing it because they've been persecuted. So the, it's the very rebellion of God's ancient people that is actually causing the gospel to spread. So what they're doing is wicked, but God is using it to do great things. The gospel is spreading. And you'll see that all the way through the rest of the book of Acts. In uh, Acts 13, 46, chapter 18, verse 5 to 6, also in chapter 19 and chapter 28, uh, you'll find that what happens is the apostle will take the gospel to, the, to whatever new town he goes to, goes first to the synagogue, to the ancient people of God, and he preaches Jesus there until he gets the boot, which he normally does. And then he takes the gospel. So let me read you what he says here at the very end of the book of Acts. This is about the fifth or sixth time this happens. He's in Rome. Remember, he hadn't been to Rome when he wrote the letter. Right? And he's seeking their support for his missionary journey to Spain. But he finally gets there as a prisoner at the end of Acts 28. And 28, 28 says this. He's been preaching to, to the Jewish folk. They get cranky with him and his message about the crucified Messiah. They don't want a crucified Messiah. They don't want to save you from sin. They want to save you from political trouble. Uh, he gets the boot. He quotes them from scriptures. Then he says this, verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know, this is the Apostle Paul, the Jewish Apostle Paul speaking to other Jews. I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And then he goes out and spends his time preaching to people like oh, most of us. And by the way, are there any people in this um, building? I imagine there might be, but you never can tell uh, whose background is Jewish. Uh, the lady who led the service at eight, her, her background is Jewish. Anyone got Jewish blood in them? Oh. Well, uh, oh, is there a hand somewhere? Yeah, okay. Tiny. It's it, all over the place. Right? There are people who are, are Jewish by blood, uh, at various levels, who've actually come to know Jesus the Messiah. This is what he's talking about here. So he then uses the famous picture of the olive tree from verses 17 on. And uh, as you heard it read, the first three or four verses are about the olive tree. And, and in Jeremiah 11 and Hosea 14, it's, it's one of the pictures God has of Israel. That they're his olive tree and he's, he tends it and it's beautiful and fruitful. But the, what he says here is what, what's happening is the olive tree is growing. God has planted it. God started it. The descendants of Abraham. But he says, those who choose to re reject their own Messiah are like olive branches that get ripped off. So I should have brought my secateurs. Right? And just, that, that's, that's what happens. Some of the branches, okay, off it goes. This picture actually, it, it's a fairly strong picture, isn't it, of cutting branches off a tree that aren't fruit. But actually, it's, it's Jesus himself used the same picture, doesn't he? Differently in John 15. 
This idea of things that kind of belong to it but get cut off if they're choosing to bear the wrong sort of fruit. So they get cut off. Let me read you verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, you now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do so, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say them, but branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. So the picture here is that there's this olive tree, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, Jews, Israelis, whatever you want to call them, um, and some of them have, have rejected the Messiah in their own life. So they get taken off. And there are some people who are sort of these wild olives, nowhere near as nice, they get grafted in, which you can apparently do with trees. Although I think it normally goes the other way. You have a, you have a wild root and they, you put some... Uh, Rose, we can talk about that later. But that's the picture he's got. Some have been removed, you've been implanted. But he says, don't forget, you're hanging on the root, and the root is thoroughly Jewish. Christianity is thoroughly Jewish, which is why it's absurd and obscene sometimes that Christians have been involved in any sort of anti-Semitism, which we clearly have in our past. Hopefully not today, it's just it's absurd, because Christianity is Jewish. But then he goes on in, the, in verses 22 to 24 to saying, if they turn back and put their faith in Jesus, they'll be grafted back into where they naturally belong, into the, the followers of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is that there is, there is a future for God's people. He is going to keep grafting them in. And it, it looks as if at the end there might be, at the end of history, there might be a great turning back of the Israeli people. The Christians differ on quite how to interpret some of these verses, but it doesn't matter. The primary thing it's saying is don't you dare look down on the Jewishness of Christianity or on Jews. Right? That's where we come from. Jesus was a Jew. Interesting, I, I, I put in a thing uh, in preparing for this on you know, famous people who were Jewish and became Christian. And um, one of the ones they mentioned was the Apostle Paul. But I noticed they didn't mention all the other apostles because... Paul was very Jewish and became a Christian. So was the Apostle Peter. He was Jewish and became a Christian. So was the Apostle John. He's Jewish and became a Christian. So was the Apostle James. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. Right? The, and, and the whole book is written by Jews. All except the, um, Luke and the book of Acts. It doesn't look as if Dr. Luke was Jewish. Um, so Christians, and I'm sure many of you know people who are keen Christians and followers of Jesus the Messiah whose ethnic origin goes back to Abraham. They're Jewish. So at the church I was first saved into, we had a bloke, I didn't know he was Jewish because I'm just, I was only 19, so who, who, who cares? Um, anyhow, every second person where I grew up with was Jewish in the East, and so was a Sydney. Professor Steinbeck, he was an endocrinologist from the University of New South Wales, Jewish, came to put his faith in Jesus, so he's grafted back into the vine. And my father used to laugh, after my father became a Christian, he used to laugh because Professor Steinbeck would turn up at the parish Bible studies. They didn't have home groups then, but they were just beginning to have parish Bible studies as well as church on Sunday. And he would have his Hebrew Bible with him. He was a very devout Jewish boy, and he knew how to read Hebrew. Apparently, it used to make the minister really nervous. And frankly, if you turn up at a Bible study, I'll leave him with the Hebrew Bible. I'll be nervous. <laughs> you can say what you like. Oh, well, Ian, in the original, but um, even if it's not true. But see, he was Christian. One of my dearest friends I've mentioned also when I met him, a very, very keen atheist, Anthony Weiss. He's now doing a wonderful Christian work in Sydney in the university. Uh, wonderfully, he's Jewish. Um, 
guy sings a little bit, Bob Dylan. We call it singing, can't we? Bob Dylan, Jewish, became Christian, caused a bit of a ruckus. Um, and I didn't realise that when Keith Green helped him become Christian, some of you will still listen to Keith Green music, a wonderful Christian singer. Keith Green helped Bob Dylan become Christian because Keith Green was Jewish. Maybe his name was Greenberg at some stage of his family name. Goes on and on. Felix Mendelssohn, I love his music. He was, and there's all sorts of people. Mark Leach, uh, a guy who's a minister in Sydney. He was a South African Jew. They're a very distinctive group in South Africa. Uh, became, this is still happening, and, and, and there are great movements around the world, particularly in America and in Israel, of Jewish people, proudly descendants of Abraham, but realised that their nation had made a mistake in Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. No, the Jews have not been written off. God has still got his plans and purposes. He's still blessing the descendants of Abraham. And so we're going to watch a video at, at the end of this um, of just one of the many people. I think you'll really enjoy that. Even if you don't enjoy the sermon, I think you'll enjoy the video. All right. He finishes this section before we look at the last question by, by talking about the way in which the Gentiles used to be disobedient to God and now many of them have come to know God and many of the Jews who should be obedient are now disobedient. Listen to what he says. Two sorts of people. Verse 29. For God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Just as you, speaking to the Gentiles here, because he's talking to them, trying to make sure they don't get proud and arrogant, as you can see in uh, some of those verses. Two mentions to them not being arrogant against the Jews. Just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God and have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, see the gospel spread, humanly speaking, because they were expelled from Jerusalem, so they too, that is speaking of the Jews, have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So what it's saying is this, friends, there are two sorts of people are those whose lives are characterised by disobedience and those who, are, who have been disobedient but their lives are now characterised by the mercy of God. It's worth reflecting which is you. Right? So at one stage it was the Jews who seemed to be obedient and the rest of the nations were disobedient. But now because the Jews had rejected the Messiah, the gospel's gone out and now the Gentiles are becoming obedient to God. But more importantly, they're tasting the mercy of God. So here's the two sorts of people, those whose, whose lives and destiny is shaped and marked and determined fundamentally by disobedience. They do not obey God. Christ is not their Lord. And those whose lives are characterised and marked by something which they don't deserve in a million years, and that is mercy. The sweet mercy of God, where God does not give you what you deserve, does not give you what your life cries out for, does not give you what sometimes your conscience accuses you of. And his mercy and grace triumphs over your sin and disobedience. God is the God of mercy. He is quick to show mercy. And his mercy is deep and steadfast. So he's saying it, 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 God, the mercy of God is ricocheting between these different people groups. So have they fallen so as to never get up? Absolutely not. A lot of stuff we're leaving out is, in fact, one of my favourite verses is ever I'm going to leave it out. What an act of self-discipline. The last questions they ask. And this is where I think this passage needs to leave us, even as we have questions. In fact, especially as we have questions. The question is in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has understood the mind of God? Who has ever been his counsellor? 
Who's ever given to God so that God should repay them? A series of questions. In verse 33, he breaks out with this conclusion, which may be the conclusion really to the first 11 chapters, but certainly is the conclusion to 9, 10 and 11. And you can, I hope you can hear the worship and the, and the joy from his mind and heart. Oh, that's an unnecessary word. That's, that's a word. It's a word. Of, that's an emotion. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. This is where good, thoughtful Christianity finishes. We use the brain. We ask our questions. We take them back humbly to the scriptures. We learn from each other. But in the end, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. Right? How beyond, beyond searching. We, we, you can't get close to understanding the mind of God. We looked at this two weeks ago. And this is not in any way humiliating the brain. It's not a mind, you know, reason versus faith. Thing. That's a nonsense. Right? But it's, it's thinking clearly enough about yourself to know that, of course, there's a zillion things that God knows that you know nothing about. His ways are not your ways. The stupidest thing that we Christians sometimes say, think, I can't believe in a God who... Look, if, if, if that's what Jesus says he's like, that's what he's like, you want to start believing what's true, not what your culture has shaped to be... Not, to, oh, I can't believe that. Right? Because what we can't believe, two generations ago, three or four countries across the way can easily believe. Right? Listen to what God says about himself, like in these chapters 9, 10, 11 and elsewhere, and believe it because it's true. Oh, the, the depth, the infinite depths of God's wisdom. Right? And we have our little, tiny little computer in our head and we say, oh, that can't be true. Job, who's a great friend of God, in the end, after a great deal of suffering and friends who didn't help, ends up calling into question the wisdom of God. And in the end, God turns up. Read, read this. And Job was so pleased to hear from God, even though God sort of really did humble. He said, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without wisdom? And God gives him about three or four chapters of question after question after question after question after question, letting Job know he doesn't even know how the physical world works. What hope has he got to play judge over how God should work things morally and ethically. It is beyond finding out for us. And it uses the word mystery here. And, and that mystery is a bit of a mystery. So in verse 25, it says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Now the word, just to get this clear, the word mystery, clearly the way that the New Testament uses it again and again. It's, it's, a, it's probably better if they just translated the word secret. I'm going to tell you a secret, although some of you know it. The mystery of Ian's middle name. It's a pretty boring secret. It's not life-changing. Who knows my middle name? Anyone? Roderick. Did you, did you go leafing through some deep, dark document in the Registry of Births, Deaths and Marriages to find out my middle name? Right. Should we be worshipping your research skills? Right. So, Millie, how do you know it? I told her. But it could still be called a mystery in this sense. That is, you couldn't possibly know it unless someone told you, which is why knowledge in the Bible doesn't make you arrogant. Because knowledge in the Bible of God is God that is knowledge that he gives you. He reveals it to you. It's the arrogant who don't have knowledge of God because they're pretending God hasn't spoken. 
See, if, if you're knowledgeable in all sorts of areas of research, you may well get puffed up because you've discovered things right, in books. Maybe you've done the experiments yourself. But what he's talking about here is the mystery. This is how God is working his way towards the final judgment in heaven and hell. It's a mystery what God has been doing with Israel. It's a mystery how God deals with human sinfulness. But God has let us know my middle name is Roderick. The mystery of the middle name. It's still, you know, it's still that they would, it's a secret that it's now been disclosed. So we are to simply rejoice in the wisdom of God. And if your brain can't get it, well, let your knee bend and worship God and rejoice that his ways are higher than your ways. We would never have thought of the Son of God dying as the answer to our biggest and deepest problems. We would never have think that the greatest revelation of the character of God is seen as a man dying an appalling death outside a city, one more crucified Jew. But that is the place where God has decided to reveal himself. If you want to keep your eyes firmly shut and keep rabbiting on about how we don't know, congratulations. But God has revealed himself. He has revealed the outline of his plan. Not every detail that you might need, but often more than we want. And the question is, do I say, okay, if that's what God has said. Right? There's plenty of evidence, to good reason why you should believe Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah with his resurrection. But then he'll tell you things you couldn't possibly know. But he has revealed it to you. So, humility and great joy and confidence. Humility says, okay. God, you know more than I do. Wouldn't be the way I'd do it, but who cares? Now, I often think, well, God, I wouldn't do it that way, and I'm glad he doesn't do it my way, because I'm an idiot. Massively culturally produced, but rabbiting on about what, a, what an individual free thinker I am, as we all say that together in our culture. We all think the same thoughts, which is that we all think for ourselves, right? Mm, yeah, sure we do. Humility. I do love the story, true story of Edmund Hillary, the guy who, with the guy from Nepal, got to the top of the mountain. They haven't told us who got there first. Right? They've kept that a happy secret. These two guys couldn't have got there without Tenzing, was it, I think? Yeah. And um, anyhow, Evan Hillary, um, a New Zealander, but good bloke nonetheless, he, 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 he did an enormous amount of work in Nepal after, because they'd been so good to him. And he was there one time, and all the people with him knew who he was. And somebody said, oh, can I have a picture with you? Because you know, this, is, this is the world's most famous mountaineer. And he said, okay. He's a humble guy. And he, um, he's there and they, they've got a, an ice axe that they use for mountain climbing beside him and he's got his hand on it. Bloke comes around the corner, happens to be American, which is out of character for the American. He comes around the corner, he says, not knowing who he's talking to, and says, hey, buddy, that's not how you hold an ice axe. And he says, let me show you how you hold that thing. Now, Edmund Hillary could have gone, he could have said any number of things to him, you know, but he didn't. He just smiled. And, and they, they took the picture the way that this idiot tourist, right, instructing Edmund Hillary on how to hold an ice axe was just insane. If that's silly, us telling God what he should do and having a little fit because God has revealed how he does it and it's not how you'd do it is accidentally appallingly silly, self-destructive and arrogant. It, even, the, even the physical world is mysterious to us. Let me read you what Einstein has said about this and then we better finish up. Including the first sentence, it's not all that relevant to it, but he did say it. Because some of the foolishness of, of uh, silly old Richard Dawkins, 
he des- in his book, if you've read his book, uh, The God Delusion, he tries to argue that, that Einstein was an atheist. Because Einstein must be an atheist, because Einstein's clever and Richard Dawkins is clever and he's an atheist, so Einstein... And yet again and again, let me read you what Einstein says. I am not... This is, you can find this for yourself. I can give, give you the reference if you write to me. I am not an atheist. What would he know? I don't think I'd even call myself a pantheist. Then he goes on and talks about our place in the universe. The human mind is not capable of grasping the universe. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written these books. It doesn't know how. The child does not understand the languages in which they're written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, Einstein says, is the attitude of even the most intelligent humans towards God. We see the universe marvellously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand these laws. Our limited minds grasp the mysterious force that moves the constellations. The most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it seems to be comprehensible. I'm suggesting to you, the bigger the brain, the easier it is to be humble. Einstein has a fairly large brain, and yet he knows he's like a kid sitting in a library trying to make sense of marvellous things. These passages should leave us humble and yet exploding with joy that God has been so wise in bringing mercy to unworthy people, to disobedient people, and working out his good plan, full of mercy and kindness. And when we think God has been too hard, God's kindness and mercy is more beautiful than, than the softest ideas of humans. So we, we break into song, right, for his love and mercy towards us. Well, I hope that's been helpful. Let's pray. Then we'll watch a brief video of a... I think it explains itself. Father in heaven, your ways are not our ways. And in our, anything but our worst moments, we're really glad they're not. Nobody loves like you love. Nobody is as merciful as you are. No one is as steadfast in love and as forgiving as you are. We've confessed to you, Father, we have trouble often believing and fully accepting the depth of our acceptance with you. Thank you that you've grafted us into this long-term program you had since the promises you made in Genesis 3 and then to Abraham. Lord God, help us to walk in joyful humility trusting you, believing those things you've said about yourself and your plans and what you've said about us, that we may walk in joy and humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.